Welcome to the first episode of Journey Into Sound. I am Mike Joseph, one of your co-hosts, along with my friend Jermaine Charles. Um, throwing this intro on at the beginning for two reasons. One, this is the first episode of a brand new podcast, so I figured it might be good to provide a little context uh, for what you're listening to. Honestly, me and Jermaine just wanted a space to talk about music. Uh, we're 40-something music nerds, 40-something black music nerds, who have had long careers in and adjacent to the entertainment industry. We share a pretty eclectic taste palette, and we enjoy talking to one another. As the podcast progresses, we will be bringing in guests to share their thoughts and opinions with us. The second reason I'm adding this intro is because we don't have theme music yet. We've got some people working on it. Hopefully by the time episode two rolls around in a couple of weeks, that problem will be solved. Until then, though, you're stuck with my voice. I guess it could be worse. This podcast could be hosted by Fran Drescher or somebody like that. Anyway, if you like what you hear, please hit us up. Our email is journeyintosound at gmail.com. That is an N in place of the N and a number two in place of the word two. So once again, journeyn2sound at gmail.com. I personally am on Instagram at detoxpodguy. Feel free to give me a follow. I'd appreciate it. I'm trying to convince Jermaine that we need a journey into sound footprint somewhere on social media. He's deliberating. It's going to happen. Hopefully that'll be sewed up by the next episode. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this first episode. Uh, please tell your friends, send us your thoughts. Let us know if you want to participate or if you have a topic you'd like to suggest. And thank you for listening. Hey, my mic sounds nice. Check one. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Journey into Sound. I am JC. I am Mike Joseph. And we don't know what the fuck we're doing. Yeah, we're doing. <laughs> we, we had the idea to do this, and we did a really basic sketch out of what we were trying to do, but it's very loose. There's yeah. no real form to it. We just want to talk about music. Yeah, we're both music lovers and yes. have had some relation to the the actual industry. Mike more so currently than and me more so in the past. <laughs> That's fine. But yeah, if you're listening to this, assuming in this first episode, one or both of us in some capacity. And uh, I mean, if you just found us randomly, that's cool too. I mean, yes, yes. Well, welcome <laughs> any and all listeners. Or who knows, a year in the future, somebody may want to go back and listen to back episodes. So right. maybe that's what's happening. But uh, if you don't already know, you'll get to know us and, and our backgrounds and our personalities and our tastes. This first episode will just kind of introduce you to us and our yeah. relation to music and, and what it means to us and talk about some of our, our formative experiences, right? <laughs> that is absolutely true. So you kick it off. Why don't you tell the folks listening a little bit about your history and kind of where you're coming from? Yeah. So I come from a very, very musical family. I myself do not play any instruments i play with a few things but <laughs> not in any like actually educated capacity you're ahead of me there but my especially on my mom's side everybody played piano sang my uncle plays you know, i can't even count how many instruments that he he actually knows how to play <clears throat> music directors at various churches and religious institutions and and that kind of thing Oh, wow. So I grew up around a lot of music. We could probably have a whole episode at some point around the relation to gospel music specifically, um, because at, at a certain point, it, we became a gospel-only household. <laughs> so that's a journey <laughs> to I, talk I mean, about. <laughs> I've heard stories of houses that had that instituted. Yeah. My house was never that house. But uh, yeah, I would love to hear more about that for sure. Yeah. Uh, so when I started rebelling against that a little bit and developing my own musical taste. When you rebel against anything, you go as far out as you can. And I just developed very, very eclectic music taste. I actually started working in radio when I was in high school at a local radio station, WFXE in Columbus, Georgia, which also had a sister AM station, WOKS. And coincidentally, I interned there for, for a little bit and then ended up doing weekend morning drives, which was both Saturday morning, where I did an hour of music before the syndicated Russ Parr show, and then an hour afterwards, and also the Sunday gospel hour. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so that was a whole thing. You but could yeah. not leave that behind you. <laughs> and then I dabbled in managing some, some local bands, trying to help them get gigs and whatnot, and put together tours within the surrounding four states <laughs> or four cities, I should say, not even really out of state. And then I got into film and TV. And at a certain point, 
was looking at maybe doing some music supervision. And when I moved out to LA, just through various circumstances, ended up being friends with all the, every, at least open format hip hop DJ worth their salt in the city of Los Angeles. Many of those people who I'm still kind of keep in contact with social media, at least today. So yeah, that's kind of my, my quick high level Your origin background. story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how I know some of the inside stories and some of the experiences I've had with different artists, particularly when I was working at that radio station. So yeah, that's me. How about you, Mike? I similarly do not know how to play an instrument. I don't even dabble. I just know that I don't have that fluency. So there's an acoustic guitar in a closet somewhere here. I've <laughs> sat behind a drum set once. I had, it, I've always been into music. I, I grew up with my mom's family and they were all big music fans. There were always a bunch of records in the house when I was a kid. I got a Fisher Price record player for Christmas on my fifth, well, Christmas wouldn't be my fifth birthday. I got, it, it was the Christmas of the year that I was five. I got a record player <laughs> and I just fell in love with records from there. And in high school, people want to be different things. I wanted to work in a record store. Nice. Uh, and when I graduated high school, I got a job in a record store. And that was 29 years ago and some change. And I have worked in music ever since. I've managed record stores. I have done PR. I have done email marketing. I've mm. touched management a little bit. I've been a salesperson on the physical and digital sides. I, I've kind of been all over the place. Still work in the music business. I'm still very much a music fan. And um, yeah, man, I'm just excited to do this and talk about music and talk about music history and have that conversation, not only with people that I enjoy talking to, but people who are have eclectic tastes and people who are culturally competent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really looking forward to what this is going to become. Yeah. And both of us are really kind of enmeshed in, in culture and, and society and how media impacts society and culture. And I think that that's a big component of what we're going to be doing here is talking about not only music that we're fans of, but music that's had an impact or music that has influenced things and how it's kind of added something to the cultural zeitgeist. We should also note that we're both old heads. <laughs> I mean, I, me more so than you. Well, still. I, I got a couple years on you, but uh, we are not millennials. <laughs> right, right, right. We are, we are Gen X. But, I, I guess uh, I'm on the cusp, maybe. Okay. People argue that. Yeah. But Also, um, worth mentioning, I also worked as a music journalist for a long time. Um, right. And I host and have hosted radio shows for the last six years. So I, I come into it from both those sides as well. Yeah, that, that was the thing I forgot. I, I did run a music blog for, for some time from like 2005 to 2010. All right. That back when those things were just getting started, got a little bit of traction. I was too young and foolish to know to how to monetize it. I was in it for like the free concert tickets and, and <laughs> early album free, releases. Free CDs, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yep. But had I known a little better, I could have probably parlayed that into something else. I might have been Brooklyn Vegan or Consequence of Sound out here, but whatever. Hindsight's um, twenty twenty. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I mean, all, all that to say, we're old heads who will probably talk mostly about old head shit. Yeah, yeah. I, and <laughs> uh, I'm 100% cool with that. I'm so yeah, so we decided for this first episode, sort of as an introduction to us, and as we're kind of figuring out the concepts, to talk about the first album that either of us remembers owning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, And I say that because we both have the first album we remember owning, which is separate from the first album we remember buying, which might be another episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lengthy period of time between the first album I owned and the first album I bought. And to be perfectly yeah, honest with you, JC, I'm not even absolutely sure what the first album I bought was. I have kind of <laughs> an idea, but it's one of those periods of time when things just kind of blend together. And I say I'm 100% certain what the first album I bought was. Yeah, we're pretty much in the same boat as far as that's concerned. So. Okay. Yeah, some people <laughs> remember those moments with a clarity that I don't possess. Right. <laughs> I have maybe five different ideas rolling around in my head of what mine was. Yeah. So, without further ado, <laughs> my album, drum rolling here. And it probably just tells you a lot about me based on what the album is. But the first album that I ever owned was Escape by Houdini. <laughs> I did not purchased this album with my own money. 
but at some my house wasn't always a gospel only household <laughs> so i was just about at, to say that ain't a gospel record <laughs> at some point that's another story that we might get into later in this episode but at some point my mom had this album which came out in 1983 so i was born in 81 uh, I'm sorry, it came out in 84 and I was born in okay. 81. So I don't know if she bought it when it first came out, but it existed in our cassette ta tape little box. Little rack, yeah. And it stood out to me because it was one of the few non-gospel albums <laughs> that was in the house. And I remember at some point just being like, mom, this is mine now. And it went out of the family tape box because back in the day, they used to have those little record player, radio, cassette tape. It was like a component system, but very flat. It wasn't separate components. It was all one piece and it was long. Right. And I got that because I had a bunch of books on tape. The Little Engine That Could and the Berenstain Bears <laughs> and all that stuff. So I would listen to all of that stuff, which given who I work for today is... I work in audio books for those who don't know. Yeah. But uh, there were some Disney records or whatever. The well, that Peter Pan song right. and some tracks from Bambi and Jungle Book or whatever. And and I also had a record. I forget what the name, but it had the song from Laughing, Here Comes the Judge, which oh, some wow. people consider yeah. to be like the very first rap record. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's that's very loosely defined. Obviously, we're talking Sugar Hill Gang, and that's like rap rap. But here right. comes the judge. We'll put a link in the show notes if you've never heard it. But Yeah, y'all got to listen to that. That's something else. And I just remember just being like, this, oh, what is this funky drum beat and these backup singers? And okay, I was into that because it was so different from the gospel music that was being played 24-7. So I had that on, on vinyl. And that did exist. But again, I remember going for that Houdini cassette tape and being like, I want this to be mine. Can I have it? Because mom never listened to it. I saw it in the box, but she never played it. And this was 1984 rap, so it wasn't like a whole lot of explicit content there, unless we can get into your definition of a freak and what they do when they come out at night. But right, right, right. <laughs> there was no obvious profanity. <clears throat> right, right. And I just remember the album cover was Ecstasy and Jalil, who are the, the two members of Houdini. And they're behind this, this fence. And the name of the record is Escape. So they're actually outside, so it's not a jail. <laughs> <laughs> and one could argue that they're probably on the side of the fence that you want to be on, depending right. on how you interpret it. But right. I, back then, I didn't know Ecstasy had his trademark Zorro hat, which he gotcha. is not wearing on the album cover, but is around his neck. So you can see the loop around his neck and the, the, back on, the hat on the back. But yeah. Escape, for those who don't know, it. everybody knows Run DMC today. But in 1984, Houdini and Run DMC were like neck and neck. neck, and neck. Yeah. Both were produced by this producer, Larry Smith. Larry Smith, who, yeah. Who was a bass player. And to hear Larry Smith tell it, he was like, all right, I made Run DMC more rock-oriented, and Houdini was more R&B-oriented. Right. Now, the hip hop that you heard in 1984 was not there. There was some vocal sampling, maybe, but it was not sample based instrumentation. They're actually playing live instruments. There's actually not any scratching on this album. And they had a DJ, Grandmaster D. Grandmaster and if D, you go yeah. back and look at like live performances of Houdini, he was a dope DJ. But on the record itself, there's very little scratching that you could tell. Um, Wait, so is Grandmaster D not on the album cover at all? Not even on the back? He's not. I don't remember the back cover because I, I don't, unfortunately, have the cassette Oh, the anymore. vinyl? Oh. <laughs> but. I think I have the vinyl somewhere in here. He's not on out. the front cover, oh. for sure. Yeah. Now, he's shouted out all throughout the record. So he's definitely a part of the group. But I don't think he, like, was visually represented on this album. I don't think he showed up on the album cover until the third album, which was the one after Escape. Oh, wow. Um, back in Black. So, and again, I guess we can link some of this in the, in the show notes, but the album came out in 84. I was probably five or six by the time I said, can I have this, this record for my mom? And imagine being a five-year-old and you put this cassette in and you just hear, And then this electronic modulated voice comes in and says, 
five minutes of funk. Yep. <laughs> Which is as advertised. You got <laughs> <laughs> five minute song with no chorus with what you come to expect from old school rap. It starts yep. out party in the start to I walked in and I probably won't leave until the thing ends and in the meantime and in between, between time, time you do your thing and I do mine <laughs> like that's right and it just goes through for five minutes yeah man. that was my introduction to hip-hop I think a lot of people will remember five well maybe not because it's a specifically a New York thing for those of you who remember video music box Yes, uh, which is a classic, classic video show still around after 40 years that originated in New York and was shown primarily in the New York area. Five yeah. Minutes of Funk is the theme song to Video Music Box. Uncle Ralph, Ralph McDaniels. That's right. Ralph McDaniels, yeah. indeed. So, I mean, how how deep do we want to go here? We we want to do like a track by track? Or what, what's no, I don't we think we do? need to do a track by track. <laughs> I think just overall impressions. It's really interesting, actually, that you mentioned that Larry Smith quote because this is the early days of commercial hip hop. There's not a lot of hip hop artists or groups out, certainly not really getting played on the radio. And Houdini, way more so than Run DMC, was a rap group that it was okay for grownups to listen to because right. their music was very much in an R&B lane and it wasn't aggressive the way Run DMC's music was aggressive. Right, and they didn't right. scream the way that Run and DMC screamed. Like, ecstasy was smooth. <laughs> Right, right, right. You know. Also, before Escape, and this is again research I've I've now gotten after the fact. Houdini actually had the very first rap music video with Mr. Magic's wand, which again we can link a video. A YouTube did you watch? In the show did notes. you watch the video? Yes. Have, how? Have how? I it? I don't remember it. How <laughs> primitive is that video? It is a time capsule for sure. <laughs> So remember, this is early days of hip hop. So hip hop fashion wasn't distinct yet. So you got guys in like a tie and a sweater break dancing, <laughs> and then a group of women in sweatpants and leotards doing the step ecstasy. It, to let the video tell it, discovers the Zorro hat <laughs> in the during the video. Yeah, I gotta watch it, this video now. Yeah, definitely worth a watch. I went back and actually watched it earlier today before we recorded just to... <laughs> and and the other part of it, it's definitely true that early hip-hop was pioneered by Black and Brown, Latino community, but there's just as many white folks in, in this early Houdini video. And I think that's part of like a diversity of New York thing where you look at early, well... Not in this particular video, but if you go back and, and when people started to call hip hop fashion a thing and like punk rock fashion, if you look at like what Melly Mel and them were dressing in, like there was not a whole lot of distinction. Like nope. Run DMC and the jeans and leather jackets, like you could also go to CBGB in that exact same outfit and nobody right. would blink an eye, right? Like, right. There was a lot of crossover. Yeah, exactly. So, and both, both genres are like rebellious music. Yeah. You know? Like there's, there's a of lot of. Exactly. So there, there's a lot of crossover there and a, a lot more that those things have in common than, than people like to give credit to sometimes. I wasn't in New York at that point, obviously, but living in New York now, it's just like things blend together. There's a lot of eclectic yeah. things that come from being in a city with a lot of diversity like this. So, Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned the album cover and I have a copy of the record somewhere in my collection here. And yeah. I remember looking at the, the fence and being like, is that drawn in? <laughs> Are they actually behind the fence? There weren't very many hip-hop albums at that time. So the art budget was probably not great. <laughs> right. Uh, but it is so basic and old-looking. And I know a lot of people like to clown on, on old-school hip-hop. But I will yeah. say that some of those songs on that album still could kind of, like, get off today. Like, if you listen to something yeah. like Friends. I mean, it's still is, sampled. Like yeah. And modern stuff that's coming out within the last two and three years is sampling Friends and what's the other one? Well, from other albums, a lot of Houdini's right. music, like One Love, obviously, yeah. and yeah. Freaks yeah, Come I mean, Out at Night. Freaks Come Out at Night, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, nah, I mean, though, that album and their music, I mean, more so that album than the Houdini catalog altogether, but right. that album has held up really, really well over the years. Yeah, for sure. And And... Again, talking about kind of the crossover, if synthesizers were a new thing, 
right? And like, there's a lot of live instrumentation on this album. So if you yeah. play something like Houdini or Mantronics and early Nine Inch Nails back to back, same shit. Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> shit. It all blends together. And um, actually, if I remember correctly, Pretty Hate Machine has some of those old school hip hop guys doing like drum programming and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. And so, Dory, about how Houdini hooked up with Larry Smith? No. So their first album was actually produced by, what's the German guy? Kobe. I'll have to look this up. Better. <laughs> There's this German producer who did, like, Kraftwerk and and New Order and a mix, a bunch of those bands. Oh, wow. So he did their first album. And Ecstasy and Larry Smith just knew each other from hanging out in New York City clubs. And they were looking for a producer for their second album. They put out an offer to Larry and the record company wasn't giving them enough budget. And Larry was like, basically, y'all can't afford me. <laughs> like, like I, y'all cool, y'all my boys, but they got to come correct. So essentially, he turned down the offer. And the very next day, I guess he was working on his car with a friend of his, another guitarist friend of his. And the friend got his fingers caught in the belt and basically, his fingers got cut off. Damn. Working on this car. And Larry took him to the hospital and was like, shit, I need money now. And called him back and was like, yo, is that offer still on the table? Because I got the situation I need to make some quick money. Um, and that's how they ended up getting together. And wow. uh, to, to let them tell it, apparently, they went over to his house and they banged out five minutes of funk within half an hour. And were like, let's take this to the record label. And if they're still down, then we'll do a whole album. <laughs> And Larry Smith was money at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I can't imagine the people at Jive being like, oh, well, well let's not do that. Right, right. It was, it was European-based, too. So Yeah, German or thing. Dutch, I, I yeah. forget which. Clive Calder, the founder of uh, Jive, was actually South African, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but it's it's funny to think now, if you, those people who think of Jive Records know that it had two pretty distinct iterations the first was in the early and late 80s, it was a hip-hop label, almost exclusively, right. where right. it was like Houdini, Boogie Down Productions, and KRS-One, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Tribe Called Quest were all on Jive. Oh, were they on Jive before, yeah. Tommy? Yeah, okay. and then a decade later, Jive Records was the label that brought you back Street Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears. Right, right. So they had a two very distinct periods of tremendous success, the latter period being significantly more successful than the first period was. But for a while in the 80s and 90s, I mean, Fushnikens was on Jive, Shaq was on Jive. Right. Hip hop went through Jive or Tommy Boy, it was one, or Def Jam. It was kind of like right, one of those right. three. Before Loud. Yeah, you know. before, yeah, before Loud. Yeah. And, and that, was, that era, like, record labels had personalities. Like, yep. you knew a Jive artist from a Def Jam artist from a Tommy Boy artist. Some people would switch labels or whatnot, but usually there was a lot of change in sound that came with that switching of labels. And yeah. I, I think before the Telecommunications Act of 1996, where there was a lot of consolidation, like damn, you kind of had these, damn, I mean, damn. this is not a political podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe in a future episode, we can get into how that all played out. But it's up the music you know, industry. Yeah, I mean, these labels had distinct personalities, usually by a charismatic label head who had their own specific taste. Like an artist would go to a label with a demo and they'd say, this is great. We actually think this will sell, but it doesn't fit our roster. Maybe you should take this across the street. Right. And now I, I don't see anybody doing that for anything. Nah. Well, A, they want you to have a certain following on social media and right. a certain you number of numbers you move before of... you even come in the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah, Jive, actually, the one non-hip-hop artist that I remember Jive having back in the 80s was Billy Ocean. And Billy Ocean oh. and Samantha Fox had those nice. two artists in, in the 80s. But yeah. yeah, it was primarily a hip-hop label. And it was a time when definitely labels, and not just rap labels, labels in general had very distinct personalities. And it was really molded by the people who were in charge right. at the label. But man, I wish Houdini got more shine. Yeah, Revisionist history really paints Run DMC as kind of the only hip-hop group that mattered from that 83 to 86 time period. But it really was a three-headed monster. It was Run DMC, Houdini, and the Fat Boys all yeah. blowing up at the same time. And uh, Houdini, again, I mean, they were mainstays on R&B radio. You could actually hear Freddie Jackson, 
in Luther Vandross and then a Houdini record and it didn't sound out of place. Whereas yeah. the other hip hop groups at the time, like it was a hard left. Yeah, which is probably how it ended up in my mom's cassette box. Right, right, right. <laughs> Quite frankly. Because I would imagine your mom's was probably listening to a lot of, I mean, I don't know when the gospel transition happened, but probably listening right. to a lot of R&B, whatever commercial soul music was during that period. Yeah, again, I was a baby, but that that feels accurate. Right. What else was in that cassette box, Jay-Z? <laughs> <laughs> I had a stepdad who, for a little while anyway, he we got the family's first CD player. I remember getting our first CD player again. And so I had like the little stereo that was like multiple components in one box. But then the, the living room, we had like the component set, which was a record player shelf mm -hmm. and then tape deck shelf and whatnot. So we Shit got you couldn't like, touch. Exactly. <laughs> so we got the <laughs> CD player component. And I remember the very first CD we got was Wham's Make It Big. And I also remember, which is probably, I don't know if we're doing spoiler alerts, but a spoiler transition alert. into what we're going to talk about next, a Stevie Wonder album, but actually it was the double album, Songs in the Key of Life. Okay. So that got a lot of play around our house for sure. And then Billy Ocean, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we were just a jive household. <laughs> maybe, maybe, damn. But yeah, I mean, like you said, early on, if you go back and look at the lineup for Fresh Fest and whatnot, Run DMC is it's right. who everybody remembers. And they say like, because they did the crossover stuff with Aerosmith and Walk This Way and, oh, that was the first to blend rock and rap. But it's like, to Larry Smith's point, Run DMC was doing a lot of guitar-based stuff. If you listen to like King of Rock yeah. or Rock, or rock Box. Box. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no so that was before Walk This Way, yeah. which is probably what led R Rick Rubin to think of it as a natural collaboration. Right. Right. Speaking of Fresh Fest, we got to give Houdini credit for discovering Jermaine Dupree. Yes. And UTFO. They were also backup dancers. Oh, so apparently right. if you wanted to get put on, you, you need, to, need be to be a backup Houdini dancer backup for Houdini. Dancer. <laughs> right. Right. Y'all all missed your calling by not being Houdini backup dancers. You could have been a huge superstar. And um, then full circle moment at a certain point after Houdini had kind of faded into the background, Jermaine Dupree actually did put out Oh, their last out. album in he like 96 so, so on yeah. So So Deaf. Yeah, he signed um, them to So So Deaf. I remember having that album. My dad actually bought it. My dad is more of a hip hop head. There's a whole story. Like, he was in the military, so we would go to the, the Army PX every Tuesday. Back then, albums came out on Tuesdays. Tuesdays. Now they come out on Fridays. Fridays that's right. But uh, every Tuesday, we would go into the PX and be like, what are the new albums out? And walk out with at least three to five new albums. So that was a lot of my music education, too. So... We ended up with a lot of so-so stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not saying so-so deaf stuff either. Right. Yeah, man. Uh, I, I was working in a record store by that point, and I remember the album coming out and me being like, who is going to listen to a Houdini record in 96, 97, whenever it right. was? And there was one single from that album that I remember, and I know it sampled Everything I Miss at Home by Sherelle. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I never heard anything else from that album because well, it was the late 90s and I wasn't trying to listen to a Houdini record when, like, Biggie was out. Right, right. Well, there was also I'm a Ho Part 2. What? Which there's... <laughs> Get out of here. That's a whole other thing. So on, on Back in Black, the album After Escape, Houdini had the original I'm a Ho. Yep. <laughs> a record with a title like that in 1986 is probably as problematic <laughs> as you think it is, but I'm actually <laughs> a little more progressive because they are referring to themselves as Those, the hoes. As the ho yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. In this case, they were not really objectifying women. I mean, How do you know? I told you so. <laughs> so. Yep, yep. That was around the same time that BDP came out with Super Ho. So, yes. <laughs> like, uh, men referring to themselves as hoes was not an uncommon thing, I guess, in hip-hop during that time. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> right. I want to come back to Friends for a second, just because mm. I, I think it's such an important song. And it's been remade over the years. I know Michelle and Deggio Cello remade mm. it and put it on one of yeah. her albums. There's a singer named Alana Davis, who a lot of folks don't know. She had a couple albums out on Atlantic. And she'd released an album in 2001, had like an acoustic cover of it. Nice. So it's one of those songs that actually, uh, the rare hip hop song that translates well into a pop song, an R&B yeah. song, whatever. And also 
friends in one love are, are two of my favorite like hip-hop songs of all time just because it gets sampled endlessly yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and they're hip-hop songs but they're written from like a songwriter's perspective like they hold together well outside of the music from a lyrical standpoint yeah yeah that's true so shout out to ecstasy may he rest in peace for yeah for those two songs what is jalil up to today like I, I can find Grandmaster D still does parties and corporate events and that kind yeah. of thing, so he's still active. But I Jalil is MIA for as far as yeah. I can tell. There was an episode of Unsung. I don't know how many folks out there know the uh, three series Unsung, which is behind the music for Black people. <laughs> yeah, um, TV One. Shout out to yeah. TV One. Shout out to TV One. And there is a Houdini episode, and I. I haven't watched it in years, but I feel like Jalil's probably just like a private citizen now. Hopefully his royalty situation was straight. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got some, some paper to live off of. And and I mean, like there's something to be said for being able to just fade anonymously into the background. Like when you want to retire, you want to be able to go to the grocery store and not get harassed. Like even ecstasy. I think if he takes off the Zorro hat before he died, like he's not, he could do his thing. Yeah. He could be a regular person. Reverend Run can't go to Whole Foods and not get recognized. <laughs> now, it doesn't right. help that he's always wearing Adidas the... endorsed sweatshirt tracksuit. Right. <laughs> but... right. Right. Run wants to be noticed. I mean, I think if you yeah, don't want true. to be noticed, you can. You don't do a reality a show when you don't want to be. Right. You don't <laughs> you turn wanna... your kids into, uh, into media personalities and put them on reality shows like whole nine yards. Right. Right. So. So yeah, I mean, we could we could go on for for days about this if we wanted to, but that's a pretty good overview. We could do a whole podcast about Houdini. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, you had an album that you owned. <laughs> yeah. So I was six, so this would have been like summer of 1982. Okay. And Stevie Wonder had just come out with Original Musicarium Volume One, which is a double album with all of his greatest hits from the seventies on it. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're a Stevie wonder fan, <clears throat> this is the greatest hits album you want because it has all the songs from talking book and inner visions and songs in the key of life on it. I was six years old. I didn't know about a lot of that stuff, right. uh, but do I do was one of the big singles off the album. And I remember getting that on a 45 and I was like, Oh, I want this whole album. And I remember talking to my uncle's girlfriend at the time, a baby mom, one or the other, I don't remember which, but uh, like, I remember asking her for the album, which is super bold, but six-year-olds do super bold <laughs> shit. Right. And she was like, that's a double album. That's expensive. I'm not buying you a new record. I'll get you a Stevie Wonder record. And she mm-hmm. went into her collection and came back the next time with a copy of Intervisions. Again, I'm six. I don't really know Stevie Wonder like that. I know Master Blaster and that girl and do I do an <laughs> Ebony and Ivory. So that's the extent of my Stevie Wonder knowledge. And I might've known like, isn't she lovely or something at that point. And at first I remember being salty because I was like, this ain't the new album. Like, (laughs) what are you doing? But beggars can't be choosers. And I I had my own record player at that time. Like we also had the component system. This was pre-CD. So it was, you know, turntable and a cassette and the nice speakers and all that, that I was not allowed to touch. And I think part of the reason that I got bought that record player was because I was already trying to be fast and touch like, grown folks record player. <laughs> and they were like, let's give this little kid something that he can play records on by himself. But Intervisions by that time was already nine years old at that point. It came out in 73 and uh, blew my mind. I, to this day, my favorite album, not just by Stevie, by anybody. But I mean, it's uh, widely recognized as one of the greatest albums. Yeah, one of, of the greatest time. albums of all time. Yeah. And it just blew my mind. Like I had no idea what Stevie was talking about or singing about, but everything about the record was amazing. Like the cover was a different material than most album Mm. covers are. It was a drawing or painting rather of Stevie, like looking out of a window and there are like beams shining out of his eyes. And at that point I knew Stevie Wonder was blind. So that was kind of weird. If you open the album up into the center, it has all the lyrics and it has another painting of these three African women. Visually and sonically, it's just kind of a feast for the senses. Touch, sight, sound, all of that stuff. And I wasn't dipping hard into my folks' record collection at that point. So it was the first album that I really was allowed to play. Like I could play all the 45s, but I couldn't play the albums because they still belong to my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles or whatever 
but that was the first album that I actually had that didn't belong to an elder. It was mine specifically. Gotcha. I played it out. Yeah. I got introduced to Inner Visions as a teenager. So like I said, grew up with Songs in the Key of Life, kind of being the family record as part of the collection. And I also remember early on, my mom had the soundtrack for Woman in Red. Okay. All right. (laughs) And then In Square Circle and all. So I was aware of Stevie. And for listeners, I, I, when I was a teenager, I actually moved in with some friends of the family and I had a kid, a son who was around my age. So that became essentially my brother. And we had this habit of putting whatever Madden football game was, was of the year and playing Madden and listening to, to records. That was our uh, definitely weekly, if not almost daily activity. Right. Okay. And Inner Visions was in steady rotation. So Ronnie, who was his name, he'd already had the cassette for, for Inner Visions. And so sitting down and listening to an album in full, which I don't know if the kids do that these days. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but that was one of the, the things that was in our rotation. And I'd known some of the songs from, like you said, Musiquarium and singles being out there, but like listening to that album in full, it, it is definitely an album that you want to take in as a whole. Mm-hmm. There's certain albums that just work and the, the are greater than the sum of their parts when, the, when they're put together. And I was a teenager, so obviously Too High struck us as funny. Don't You Worry About a Thing being a favorite. Mm-hmm. Put on visions and close your eyes, man. That that's just an amazing song. Yeah, which was it was interesting when Timbaland sampled it for uh, the Genuine record. Which one was it? I forget the name of the record, but oh, I didn't uh, even realize it was a Genuine record that sampled it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, okay. Like he did some nice things with that. But yeah, I mean, and living just enough for the city. Like mm-hmm. obviously, that was one that I knew before listening to the album as a whole. But like that, that's ubiquitous in black culture. Like if if you talk about black music, if you were to take a a course on black music, just enough for the city is going to be like one of your topics of study in and of itself. Sure. The song is a movie in itself. Like it has yeah. a whole plot line. <laughs> And that's like one of the things I love about that album and Stevie's whole period you know, in the 70s and, and maybe early 80s too, is that the albums that he made were such like an all-encompassing experience. Like you could close your eyes and listen to the words of that song and like draw out the scenarios inside your head. Yeah, yeah. And it was stuff that could, that appeal to everybody. Like, Look, I was six. I didn't understand too high at all, but I thought the lyrics were funny. Listen to a song like you mentioned, Don't You Worry About a Thing. And then he has that part at the beginning where he's talking to this lady and he's speaking pigeon version of Spanish. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's funny. And and yeah, like even as a six-year-old without understanding what the songs were about. And some of the songs, I guess, Mr. Know-It-All, like that requires a little bit of historical context. History, it's yeah. about Nixon. But even as a six-year-old in 1982, or as a teenager in the late 90s, that stuff still resonates. Well, 23 years old, played the majority of the instruments across the whole album. Man. I mean. How? Yeah. How? (laughs) I mean, but also, he'd been doing this since he was 16. Fingertips. He was I mean, 16 when fingertips. Like, he was or 13. 13. He yeah. was 13 when fingertips came out. Yeah. So, like, he'd already been 10 years in the game at that point. Like, there's people at 23 who can't even wipe their ass correctly. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> and this dude made inner visions at 23. It, it is mind boggling to yeah. think that someone so young could put together a record that is so accomplished in so many different ways. And he wrote, produced, played damn near every yeah. instrument. Like he created that. It wasn't like he had a studio full of people like asking for co-writes and collaborating and throwing words in and like doing that kind of thing. Like that shit, most of that album evolved from his head. Yeah. Well, and people know Stevie as a keyboard player because that's the the iconic you see him behind the keyboard doing the head bob thing. But like... (laughs) Go to YouTube and look up Stevie Wonder drum solo. Yeah, man. And just click on a couple of those links. And yeah. it 
there's there's this one clip from the 60s where he's i forget what song they're doing but they go into the the breakdown and stevie gets led over to the drum kit and the drummer who was playing the back was doing a decent job of like keeping the song going and stevie just was like like put this man out of a job (laughs) (laughs) and he's standing there like like why am i here (laughs) because he just goes off but he's just so talented and and this was this was almost his last album yeah he got into a car accident either shortly before or shortly after right after yeah inner visions was released and if I remember the story correctly, he had fallen asleep in the car. Obviously, Stevie had a driver and a logging truck. Something happened. There was a logging truck in front of him and a bunch of logs came out the back of the truck and crashed through the front windshield of the car, knocked Stevie out. He was in a coma for a number of days. And, yeah, like 10 uh, days. Yeah. And then came out the coma. And I mean, thank God. He was afraid to play. Yeah. 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 So it's weird to me that a song like Higher Ground exists was written uh, before right, the accident written before yeah. the accident yeah yeah but yeah i mean uh, we almost lost stevie before he almost before he hit his stride um yeah. which would have been a, a tremendous loss and and thankfully he survived uh, apparently lost his sense of smell which like yeah. sucks if you you, you can't you know, taste anything then right you're down one cent or you're down one sense like oh, it's pretty yeah. cruel to have you lose a second one but, uh, but yeah man i mean it's it's crazy to think that that album is almost 50 years old you had said it out loud. I hadn't done the math. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the only reason that really stuck in my head is because I think Talking Book just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Talking Book was the one right before. Right before. before it, yeah. Yeah. I, I just like. Steve had Stevie has had a few different periods, if you will. So like Intervisions, we can talk about as as his well, his classical period. So he's got like his early career where he's basically bubblegum Motown pop. Right. And then his classic period, which is talking book, inner visions. Fillingness. Uh, yeah. And songs in the key of life, like those four albums. Right. And then, like I said, people know him as a keyboard player. Cause he got, he got pretty synth happy. Went. <laughs> <laughs> in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the woman in red soundtrack, there's, there's some, there's some songs where you can tell he's just fucking around with this new technology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Stevie, I, I love Stevie, but if you listen to some of that 80s stuff, I mean, it is, Inner Visions is not of any era. The Woman in Red is of its era. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. In Square Circle, which I like, I think it, I mean, I partially because of nostalgia and I grew up with it, but also right. that's very... Very experimental, like, oh, what does this button do? Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm going to just press all of the things. Yeah. yeah. And Stevie's had like a kid. He's got an eight-year-old right now. Stevie, apparently <laughs> when Stevie was not making records, he, he was making babies. Stevie's got like yeah. eight kids. Nine. Yeah. Nine. Damn, son. Yeah. yeah. And like he's he's in his 70s now. So mm-hmm. like he's had a kid within the last 10 years. Yeah. Like, hey, your boy is out there. If you got it like that, you got it like that. I'm saying Stevie was 1970s Nick Cannon. (laughs) Apparently still is. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No, it's really funny. I was reading one of the Pointer Sisters wrote a book and in it, she talks about being seduced by Stevie Wonder in like the (laughs) 70s. And I'm like, I'm not sure how that works, but I wouldn't put it past Stevie to like Stevie had game. I mean, if 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 the movie Ray is to be believed, Ray right. had Ray had game too. <laughs> so his eyes don't work; his dick does, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh, go ahead. And just eccentric genius. Yes, you got it. <laughs> Indeed. I I I don't know if I've told this story before. I uh, there was one point when I was doing my radio show inside the studio. I do it remotely now, but Radio Free Brooklyn has a studio <clears> space, and I was doing it there then. And I had a guest and uh, I would have my guests make their own playlists. And this guy had visions on, on the playlist and mm. Radio Free Brooklyn inside that studio. Fantastic. I mean, they're secondhand, but they're fantastic studio speakers. The sound is great. And I remember like we played visions and we just sat there in complete silence. And like, I look over at him and tears are coming out of his, this grown man's mm. eyes, listening to this 50 year old record 
just in perfect sound and just like a testament, I think, to the power of that record and just the fact that Stevie was so on one at, at yeah. that point in his career. His music just, that album just affects people on like a soul level. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, uh, right before we started recording, I was flipping through some things and I found a performance, a Stevie Wonder performance from 74. So it struck me that like, this had to be after the recovery mm. from the accident. Mm-hmm. And he's not missing a beat, man. Like I'm reading about how it took him a minute to like feel comfortable getting back into it. But like when he did, he came back full force, apparently. I, I mean, judging from this performance and now we can link this in the show notes. Yeah. As yeah. Well. We definitely should link but that. But like, <clears throat> yeah. Cause he canceled a tour that year and then did select few. And I don't, I don't know where this is from or how I got it. it this looks like a TV studio recording huh but it's a Might full it have set been like one of those german tv shows like where they would have like an artist record like a full hour or whatever or a half hour yeah and and the youtube channel that i found it on is called potentially a german word i don't know is it like it could be like <laughs> music laden or one of those yeah 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 that's yeah, it yeah. that's exactly okay. that's actually that's exactly it okay so yeah that's probably probably where it comes from but is there was that like their version of the old gray whistle test or whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy. I mean, I've seen Stevie in concert twice once, I would say maybe like 2007, 2008, and then mm. when he did the uh, Songs in the Life and Songs in the Key of Life anniversary tour, which I guess was 2011. Okay, that would have been like the 35th anniversary. Okay, he, relatively he, recently. Yeah, he toured just playing songs from Songs in the Key Life. And it was him and India Ari. Okay. And the ability that he has, even at his age, to just make an arena of people like go pin drop quiet. Yeah. The fact that his voice hasn't suffered very much. People get older, the songs start dropping in keys, like all that stuff starts happening. Stevie's yeah. not doing that. I, I, his voice is well-preserved and just like his music, again, like I keep going back to the emotional impact that his music has on people. Yeah. I, I saw him once. It wasn't a performance, but a couple friends of mine in LA used to do this yearly event called Wonderful, which is basically a tribute night to, to Stevie. And I, I believe they did it both here in LA and uh, both in LA and here in New York. Isn't that uh, Spinner's Joint? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. I, I know the guys who were promoting it, and they would get Spinner to come in, and different people throughout the years would, would co, co-do it with Spinner. But uh, one year in L.A., Stevie showed up at the Echoplex, and I was, I would, I was there that night. I'd go um, crazy. And if you, if you look on YouTube, you can probably find it, because it's, it's the same night that Stevie started talking about the iPad. And how great it was for for blind users, and he he didn't. I mean, it was a DJ night. They it's a tribute. They spin records, so he didn't play anything. But he came out and he talked to the crowd, and he he talked about how this was like right after the iPad had been released, and he was like, "I can be on Facetime having a conversation with you, and and use my iPad, and you won't even know, and I don't, I can't even see. Like this is how 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 great this technology is for me." And it was just, you know, just very charismatic and not even just showing up and standing on stage. Right. Like, yeah, I'm in the house and right. people go crazy. Like that's, that's his personality. And he's been doing it since he was 13. 13 years old, man. <laughs> it's, it's, since he was you know, the muscle memory. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. But I mean, look, I, I think our lives are all better for having him in him. Yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, I mean. This, this is we're just gonna sit here and talk shit and talk shit i'm down <laughs> look look i'm totally down man i love these conversations i'm hoping we can bring in some special guests and maybe some insiders to talk about specific albums or artists or so anything music related even we could talk about a a, a significant tour that yeah gone on or it'd be cool to talk about when they say the nights james brown saved boston this story That's right yeah no like story the yeah. kind of thing we could talk about yeah but we do have this is going to be I, I would like this to be as interactive as possible so as much as we want to make this show into something whatever anybody who is choosing to listen wants it to be 
All right, anybody you would like to have us feature or reach out to or anything specifically you want to hear the two of us talk about, we did set up an email address. <laughs> Old school. Journeyintosound at gmail.com. That's the letter N, the number two, journeyintosound at gmail.com. So shoot us a message there. Tell us what you think. Tell us that you're loving it, that you want us to do something different, that who are who are you? <laughs> right. You want to hear more yeah. about who we are and like why you should listen yeah. to us? Or if you want to come on yourself, whatever. Like we're just trying to talk about music and culture and we're see open. where it goes. Yeah. And I, you are social media avoidant for the most part, which I respect. <laughs> I'm on Instagram at, at Detox Pod Guy. And as much as I talk about my other podcast and stuff that has to do with masculinity on that Instagram, I also talk a lot about music and show off my record collection and things of that nature. So <clears throat> you can always slide into my DMs and have a conversation. And if you want to be on the show, we can make arrangements from there. Or if you somebody who would be a good addition for an episode or a topic that you want discussed. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you off mics of some of the people that I immediately want to try to get on. Okay, because it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I also feel like, and for those of you who 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 don't know, we got to do a bad brains episode. Yeah. Like Mike has a bad brains tattoo. I have a bad brains tattoo <laughs> on his body, yes. and there's yeah. there's a lot to discuss there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. So, yeah, so, um, yeah. Plenty of plenty of op- plenty of options, plenty of opportunities. Yeah, for sure. All, all genres, all like I said, we're old heads, but yep, we'll, we'll talk about newer stuff too. So I mean, within reason. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm also um, I've got this box of old records, CDs mostly, some cassette tapes and other stuff in there that has literally been in a box since I left LA. So it's literally like me opening it up and like, I don't know what's in there. So that might be kind of cool to just kind of like do a grab bag episode where we're JC's like, memory oh, box. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm um, down with that. And a lot, it's a lot of stuff like random stuff. I got singles when I worked in radio that promo stuff that they sent us. So right. who knows what's in there? It could be kind of cool. Let's do see it. What comes up. Yeah. Well, all right. We're, we're thinking what, like once a month, probably. Yeah, um, once a month feels like a good cadence. So uh, we we'll look for your emails. Yeah. We want to hear more about. Let us know what you think. Hit us up and uh, throw us some ideas, and uh, we'll be back in a month. Yeah, or uh, might be cool to do some reaction episodes too. Like we probably can't get away with like playing it, copyright yeah. stuff. But like, yeah, we got copyright issues. We could listen to something and then come back and do our reactions on right. like. Yeah, I'm that down with be that. Kind of cool too. So if yeah. you guys want to hear reactions from mike and jay <laughs> i mean I, I i no responsibility if they end up being salty reactions right like, <laughs> this trash right, right like <laughs> i got through 30 seconds of it how dare you <laughs> yeah you know? but yeah yeah open to all of that <clears throat> all right well until cool. next time this was journey into sound <laughs> thank you for listening <laughs> see you next I mean, see you soon <laughs> hit the stop button on this <laughs>